Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fault, I'm the editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is the writer or co-writer and director of the new movie, Ad Astra, James Gray, who was on the podcast a couple years ago for uh, Lost City of Sea. James, thanks for uh, doing this. You're very welcome. You don't need to thank me for doing this. I like this stuff. You know, uh, I know I had this idea of this movie going in, right? I'd heard Heart of Darkness. I saw the trailer. It seemed like, you know, the dad is is Kurtz, and I know you've, you're a big Coppola person, so I had this preconceived notion of what this was, and I think the thing that surprised me so much about it is it's so hopeful. There is, this is something, this, in this journey into loneliness, this film was a lot, a lot more hopeful than I, I think maybe I thought going into it. I, I, I don't, I'm not fond of criticizing people who are cinephiles because there are so few of us and it's a wonderful cultural tradition but the thing is we cinephiles always try to put movies in a box and say oh it's just like this movie or that movie and it's I'm as much to blame for it as anybody because I think in an interview I said that I joked I said it was a mashup of 2001 and Apocalypse Now and of course what happened was that everybody picked it up and started asking me about that you know you say one thing in Madrid and it becomes you know a worldwide thing now but absolutely true I mean yes it has a it shares a lot with the heart of darkness Apocalypse Now thing but ultimately that wasn't what our ambition was at all and obviously it's a much more personal and direct relationship that uh, Brad has with Tommy Lee Jones in the film and where it ends up is a little different so you kind of steal from the best but then you make it your own hopefully you put it through your own filter and I had a place in my life where I just didn't want to make heart of darkness per se you know I mean that ends in a very bleak place the book of course ends with Marlowe lying to Kurtz's wife you know saying he said your name and it's just it's horrifying, depressing thing about uh, imperialism. And Apocalypse is like pure doom. Mm. And those works of art are magnificent, but I can't just reproduce that. Yeah. I'm curious, obviously, eventually, this, this film, be, is, is the screenplay is very well structured. But I'm wondering in the beginning, as you're laying out this journey and as you're exploring in man's ambition and, 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 and this kind of exp- exploration into the loneliness, of madness of loneliness, did you know kind of in the, like, do you start with a, a sense of, well, at the end, we're gonna have that personal, we're gonna fill that donut hole, that loneliness is going to lead to him having a, an appreciation of Earth and... We human, definitely knew that. You knew, so you that was right, right from the very beginning. That was the whole goal of it. I had, um, I had read this beautiful passage uh, that begins Sirens of Titan, which is a Kurt Vonnegut book from 1957. And I'm paraphrasing here. I'll probably do a, a bit of a terrible job of it. But he basically says in the beginning, uh, man looked to outer space for answers, ever outward, ever outward, flung themselves like stones, I think he says. And in doing so, found only pointless death and low comedy. And the true terra incognita remained the landscape of the soul, which I thought was really beautiful. And I thought, in the beginning, I thought, well, you can do all the looking outward that you want, 
but this is what we've got. There's no real, realistic scenario where we set up a you know camp in a Goldilocks planet that's you know 17 light years away. That's not that's not realistic. At least it's not realistic for any of the next. 20 generations if the species even lasts that long. And knowing that, there's something kind of okay with that. I, I'm, not a, I'm not miserable that large numbers of aliens haven't landed in the middle of Central Park. Like, I feel like that's good news. Because <laughs> we don't know what they'll be like, and we don't know if they even exist. So, or if we can communicate with them, probably not, right? So, I, I kind of think Dealing with other human beings is really interesting and uh, really fun and beautiful. And in a way, in the way that you get there, and I, I, I hope I'm not wrong on this, but it seems to be taking kind of the hero's journey and almost deconstructing oh, it. Oh, it's to completely that. I mean, that's part of the reason we got to Apocalypse so quickly, because you realize it's all from the same stew. What happened was uh, we, we had originally thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to be very honest with you here, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of angry letters, but I consider 2001, uh, which is, I think, the greatest film in the genre and one of the five or six greatest movies ever made, really, um, it's a failure at what Kubrick intended originally, mm. because if you look at the title, Space Odyssey, and you think about Bowman is the, is the name of uh, Keir DeLay's character, Bowman, and he fights this one-eyed Cyclops, really, the computer, um, and he gets transformed at the end. It, it's very clear he's trying some kind of mythic journey, but the movie doesn't succeed on that level at all. You don't know anything about Keir DeLay. It, it really succeeds on the level of like a myth of the gods, mm -hmm. really. And it succeeds brilliantly beyond even our, our, you know, an artist's hopes, I would think. But it does so on a level that's different, I think, than the one Kubrick must have intended. And so my co-writer Ethan and I, we sat around thinking, what if you tried to do a myth of man story in space as opposed to a myth of the gods movie? In other words, there were no aliens. There was nothing to, there was no little green men that were either bad or good. That it was totally about the, one heroic figure. So we atta attacked it that way and we started reading a lot of Joseph Campbell. But you realize that, you know, Apocalypse, you know, Apocalypse was supposed to be directed by George Lucas mm. originally in 16 millimeter. They were kind of like an experimental 16 thing. Yeah. Exactly. And they were going to shoot it on location during the war, which seems beyond crazy. Uh, and of course, Star Wars owes so much to Campbell. So you realize that. Uh, when you look at Apocalypse, if you were to watch that through a Campbellian filter, you'd see that he hits those points too. Like, especially in the the new edition, where you know there's uh, when he meets up with Aurel Clément, it's like sort of a meeting with the goddess and the the, uh, the woman is temptress is the playmates. You know, you you can track it almost completely that way. So we wound up stealing from Campbell, which of course meant we were stealing from John Milius and Francis Coppola. But the, but that's the re and, but that's sort of the reason you know because it, we wanted to do a myth of man story, 
I don't even remember what your question was. But, <laughs> the, but it's this idea, though, because the how you were going to structure to get there, even though you're ending up in a different place, it's it, it, you're taking this hero's myth and almost using the structure of that. We absolutely but, were. But then we, almost uh, on it kind of dressing it down along the yeah, way. Yeah, no, that's certainly true. We were trying to do, I remember thinking this consciously, that why don't we do the Odyssey, but from Telemachus's point of view. And if you look at the movie in that way, if you know the Odyssey, it makes more sense because uh, you know Odysseus goes off for 20 years and the, you know Telemachus is left to wonder. But I mean, it ends, of course, very differently. But uh, that was the beginning of the idea. And then, of course, when you cast someone like Brad, you, you have someone who is this very classic uh, masculine American figure and then you can tear that to shreds. You can reveal how vulnerable that person is. And in a way, that his emotional repression is a form of cowardice that's, in, a, in some strange order of things, is an underrated quality. Yeah. You know, this emotional intelligence is very underrated. Uh, so this was all part of the idea, the initial calculus. One last screenplay question. You know, the, that sense of the world that his ambition has left a personal life in, in shambles or behind. It's, it's always an interesting choice, but to just show a glimpse of Liv Tyler, just that kind of, I don't even think there's audio, it's just kind of almost a memory of like kind of walking out of a door. There's always that thing of how much of that do we need? How much of, you know, that sense of, of a human connection that was left behind versus just a glimpse. It totally works, but I have to imagine that's always a, a question of balance of how much you, you're going to need of that to carry it forward, right? Yeah, I felt that the Liv Tyler thing, if you added more of it, people would say she didn't have much of a character, mm. and they'd be right. So I tried to keep it as abstract as possible because the idea was it's not that we don't care about her as a person. It's that he didn't care about anybody yeah. as a person. So we're seeing her through his very uh, almost, uh, I don't know, would the word be solipsistic view of the world, you know? And I, I, I just didn't, you know, I even had her say, you don't look at me as a person, mm -hmm. I'm my own person, I have my own life, as if to say that her existence was totally apart from his and that his lack of ability to connect with her, that it was the point, in other words, it was the point of that. It yeah. wasn't that I was too lazy to write a character or something, you know. Yeah. So, but, but how much do you do? I mean, that's always a struggle, but I felt that, like I said, I felt, you know, I had to deal with a similar issue on the previous film I made where I went through great lengths to try and uh, establish the importance of Sienna Miller's character in The Lost City of Z. And, and I thought that ultimately the way to do it, to kind of beat the trap of the woman left behind cliche, mm -hmm. would be to address it head on and actually have her want to go with him and end the movie with her to try and validate her humanity. And people still said she's not a developed character. So at some point, either the movie's about the woman, which is actually a very valid and great thing to do, or maybe I shouldn't have any women character at all or something. Mm -hmm. It's a tricky one, especially now, because the, the politics are, are, are so fraught 
and you understand why. You know, I was in Marrakesh. I was the head of the jury last year at the film festival, and 50% of the films I saw were with women and, st and directed by women, and they were fantastic. And you realize, well, shit, we've just missed 51% of the population. So I get why people would criticize it for that. Mm. But at the same token, it's not what it was about. No, I mean, it was the right, definitely the right choice for this one. You know, the sci-fi is something that always is drawn in a number of great directors. But you know, I think about the way that you have worked. I'm thinking about specifically in space. You know, we're in a hotel room right now, and one can imagine how you stage a scene or two characters or two actors in space, and and the way that you've worked in your previous films. Is there something about you when you're? I have to imagine creatively, it's a totally different thing. A black box and wires and 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 often solitary human beings. It, it's, I imagine, kind of, a, it's still filmmaking, but I imagine so many of the instincts that you have as a filmmaker, you have to kind of re, um, almost do a different geometry with it. Is it, is it, is it, is it like that? It's a great question. I, I can only answer by saying that it was a tremendous challenge and I sort of hated it. Mm. Um, not, not because, by the way, of, of the actors, you know, Brad mm. never complained at all, but because when you have a scene between, you know, the, the basic conversation with any scene, they say, you have to think about it as follows. I had a, there was a wonderful teacher at USC, was a, she was a great actress in Hollywood movies. Her name was Nina Foch, and she taught at USC. She used to say the essence of the scene was, what does one person want from the other? Yeah. So here you find yourself, I certainly found myself with one actor, not two, in an environment where the actor couldn't really interact. And actors are very sensory creatures. They need to be able to listen to the other actor, or if they don't, they should be reminded to do so. And they also need the environment. So I, I always think of a very famous story where you know, and on the waterfront where Brando, she drops her glove, Ibn Rissing, and he picks it up and starts playing with her glove on the swing. And when you rob the actors of that, mm. there's something that l you lose touch with that sensory necessity for performance. And I felt on very, very shaky ground doing it. It's funny. I said to myself, doing Lost City of Z, I said, oh, this is so hard, and sitting in the jungle, it's really awful, which it was, it was terrible. Uh, and, you know, I'm not built for that. I'm built for, to be an accountant in Minsk or something. I'm not built for the jungle. But the actor can interact with the jungle. Yeah. We can stage a scene, uh, you know, I have Charlie Hunnam and Robert Pattinson, and I can say to the, either one of them, you're going here and you're going here, and they can use the environment, listen to each other, listen to the jungle, in that black box where there is nothing to interact with. You have to fill it up. You have to tell the actor every last thing. And that's really hard. And I think, frankly, I think it's why Kubrick made the film ultimately the way that he did, which was a brilliant choice by him, recognizing the weaknesses in most of those genre films, Kubrick turned that to his advantage. And 
I wasn't able to do that, one, because Kubrick is Kubrick, but two, because you can't make the same film that he did, mm -hmm. and when your film is about human connection, you can't rely on the same things that Kubrick was relying on for his narrative. So I found myself trying to invent the, the sensory things that the actor needed, trying to invent a counterpart within the scene for Brad, that it was all about an internal monologue, that everything, everything was like a series of soliloquies, you know, that I would fill it up by saying, this is what you're thinking, this is the external conflict, this is the internal conflict, trying before every take, before every scene, and that becomes very wearying. I imagine not only does this mean a different relationship with Brad compared to all the other great actors that you've, and actresses that you've worked with, but you know, one thing that was interesting, to, part of it is also the camera and, and, and rhythm. And I, I read the New Yorker profile last night. One, I don't know if this is something you normally do, um, but it, it seemed to make sense in the context of what we were talking about is even just playing music in, a, in, in I don't know if it was music for you um, or if it was something that was, it was on a, a speaker or something, but even just a sense of, of, of a rhythm or how this is going to play, right? Yeah, I did that a lot. I mean, I always, I've always done that. Oh, you have? That because that's, a, that's something that silent film directors used mm -hmm. to do all the time. You know, you play music on the set. And Stanislavski said that music is the most direct path to the human heart. It helps you with understanding the emotional temperature of the scene, the pace of the scene. Um, and that was um, that was certainly very helpful to them, to the actors. But it only provides you with part of the answer. Mm. It's not like you you know you can play uh, part of the Pier Gint Suite by Grieg, and that's all the that's what the scene is. Mm. It helps them understand part of what you're trying to communicate. But it's like I said, the the real challenge for Brad in this was that there was a kind of a, a, a need for a constant ongoing soliloquy. You know, even Taxi Driver, which is about loneliness, obviously, he does relate with Sybil Shepherd uh, and Jodie Foster. Now, however primitive or um, almost atavistic his relationship is with both of them, it's still there. There's still an emotional reaction. It's still, still a, absolutely. Yeah. And here I robbed him of that opportunity. And so we had to, like I say, fill it up in other ways. And the voiceover was certainly one of them, but also uh, having him talk to a computer, you know, that was the only thing he could be honest with. And the, the dialogue had to be different with Brad because I, 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 couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't demand that he listen to the other actor. I couldn't spur things in him by using other actors, which is a lot of the techniques that you use with other actors. It was, I was robbed of that stuff. And it was a formidable challenge. He was up for the challenge, you know, he really was very willing and anxious to reveal himself. But it was not, it was not something that I understood completely how to direct right off the bat, I have to confess. I have imagined also in this kind of black box world, and I'm only thinking of myself in context of, of your previous films, but I also have to imagine that suddenly, like, maybe instinctively you and I are sitting in these chairs and you instinctively are kind of thinking about where the audience is. I have to imagine the kind of infinite of, like, where I could put the camera is, and even just the geometry of the vertical sets and the horizontal awful. sets. Because I imagine, 
I know your movies are pre-planned, but I have to imagine there's certain things that are just kind of instinctive of how we're going to see things. Uh, uh, in totally, it. and I, it's a yet another, you know, it's funny, I've, I've said this before, but you think, okay, I'm in the jungle, this is horrible, and then you think, I'm going to go make a film on a stage in L.A., it'll be much easier, and it was much harder for exactly the reason you explained. If you, if you have the viewfinder, you know, I love to search for the shot. Usually it's the master shot that takes you all the time in the morning. Once you've established the master, then if you're doing close-ups, they're somehow almost dictated by what your master was, what the staging is. But the first order of the day is staging and your master shot. So, you know, I always try to put on a lens and I look at the actors and figure out what it is I'm going to do. Now, you have an idea of what you're going to do during the day, but it always gets screwed up. Now, this is very different, by the way. The, the motion picture has evolved. Not, not, it hasn't, you know, it's funny. Movies, art doesn't go through revolutions as much as we love to think of it. It goes through evolution, really. And the movies have evolved in a very interesting way, almost entirely dictated by the actor. You know, we always love to put directors on the pedestal, but the truth is that the actor has dictated the, rev the evolution of the medium. So what am I talking about with regards to what you're asking? I'll try to explain. In the 1930s, you had actors who were essentially, they spoke with mid-Atlantic accents, right? And they, they operated in a very, what they call, filmic representational way. So that was the style. Greg Toland or, 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 or some great cinematographer, Ted Tessoff, he put marks on the floor, you know, and the actor would go to the mark, say the line, go to the next mark, say the line. So Hitchcock could storyboard a movie to the inch of its life and shoot it in those pieces. And then comes Montgomery Clift and Marlon Brando, and all of a sudden, they, Brando goes to pick up the glove. And Kazan starts to model the mise-en-scene very differently. And of course, it also came out of Europe, right? The, the casting of a non-professional in The Bicycle Thieves. Yeah, right. So all of a sudden, the actor started to go all over the place. And as the director, you couldn't say, hit that mark and hit that mark, because the actor was, the craft was evolving past filmic representational. So then where you put the camera had to be a conversation and it had to be uh, something that accommodated the actor but also explained the story so you couldn't put the camera exactly where you wanted to you couldn't I would argue it's why Hitchcock's work toward the end didn't play as well because he was still trying to fit it into that style mm -hmm. but it looked stiff so the actor started to dictate how to move within the space along with the camera now if you're in a black box and you have no set to interact with. And the first order of the business on, on, in the, every day is to, you get to the set with your set of lenses and your actor is there and you've pre-planned it but you know there's gonna be a discussion with the actor. And you kinda don't know where you're going and the actor's gonna be 30 feet up there on wires and you're gonna have to imagine where Neptune would be behind him because there's nothing there. It's all created after the fact. You find yourself in a debate, an internal debate about mise-en-scene, about, about where the camera would be best and trying to imagine and project later on what it will look like. 
And I found myself drawing pictures every day to try and accommodate where Brad would say, well, I'm comfortable doing this and maybe I should go down here. And I say, oh, that's good. But then where's the camera go? Well, that's a huge debate then. And uh, you don't really have much help. So I, I had a hard time and I found it wearying. I don't know how people do it in what they call the volume, you know, this green box. People oh, God, yeah. I don't know how they do it. And it's funny because you think to yourself, well, that gives you more choices, but in fact, it gives you quite a few. You know, there's no, there's no, if I use this dirty word, there's no art without discipline. In some sense, you need the restrictions of the space you're in to give you some kind of orientation. Lost City of Z's got the, got the, got the river going through, you got yeah. the jungle, you've got the, you've, you've got, got everything you've there got every, that you've you got other human beings. And it's like, it's, there's, there's, there's a, infinite compositions, but there are compositions. Absolutely. In, in, it's, in it. it's, you, you, you can't, when you have to create it from the ground up completely, yeah. it's extremely disarming because you, you, you can't, there's something that's not tangible about it and you feel adrift. I would, every morning, I would feel really adrift until I finally would get the master out of the way and then I felt a little better. But before that, it was hair-raising. I have to imagine one of, one of the more helpful elements here, I mean, you've always worked with great cinematographers, but having Hoyta, who has d worked in this, you know, kind of an interstellar type, which is a different movie, but having, having done something like this had to, yes. had to have been, for lack of, I mean, he's a great cinematographer, but also, and I'm sure a great collaborator, but also a little bit of a safety blanket in that sense, he right? was, That was, I'll be very bold with you, it was the reason that I got Hoyta to do this with me. Uh, Darius was off, Darius Kanji was the cinematographer I'd done the last two films with. Darius was doing uh, Okja, and I, I don't know, that was like a five billion day shoot or whatever, and he was in South Korea, and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get a cinematographer who can help me with the nuts and bolts, and I'm very uh, good friends with Chris Nolan, and he, he sang Hoyt's praises. And Chris knows what he's doing. So I felt, well, that's pretty reliable. And so then when I met Hoyta, I quite loved him. It was a, a funny meeting because I, I said, Hoyta said, I've never seen a film of yours. I said, oh, okay. He said, um, are you any good? <laughs> I said, am I any good? I said, I don't know. Maybe you'll tell me. Did Chris give me any recommendation? <laughs> well, no, I didn't, ask, I didn't ask Chris to give him, to, to recommend me to him. You know, I just was, I thought he was, you know, had seen my films and when he was yeah. meeting me and stuff, but he didn't know anything about it. I barely knew who I was. So that was a wonderful way to meet him because there was, from that moment on, we were very honest with each mm -hmm. other. And I, I'd wanted the technical know-how from Interstellar, although I was after something very different. Of course, I'm a, yeah. you know, a huge admirer of Chris, but I, you know, I didn't want to rip him off. So uh, Hoyt and I decided to do a deep dive into much more uh, avant-garde cinema and, and, and also a, a lot of different work with color which I'm sure you noticed in the movie. Well, because I mean, part of, it, part of it is as one goes into deep space, you don't have natural light. So part of this is even what, I, I know that you tried to stay as factual as possible. But part of this is like, what, you are can't. You, what, what is light gonna be out there, You right? can't stay factually, I mean, here's the thing. I'm sure there'll be a bunch of scientists and you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson or something's gonna tell me how I screwed this up and, and he'll <laughs> be right. 
But I can't, what, first of all, Neptune, on Neptune, the sun basically looks like a large bright star. Well, it's 2.7 or 2.8 billion miles away, something like that, depending on the orbit. So you have no light out there. It's completely dark. So what am I supposed to do? Not like have an exposure? You're watching a scene totally in pitch black? No. So we underexposed it, you know, but, but we still had to, to do that. And, you know, it's like zero G, Brad's face, would, you know, he'd look like Buddy Hackett after time and space. You can't do that. So you have to cheat a little bit. But, I, you know, the, the, still what you try to do is establish some kind of plausible light source, some plausible uh, idea behind the light. Um, I'm always distracted when I see things, see lighting that isn't plausible. And the key is to, the trick is to make it have meaning and create mood and create atmosphere and create emotion without being obvious about it. It's an amazing thing that he did in this movie because in general the lighting is in, for space pretty subtle, but it has, it does have a, a temperature, a feel, um, a texture to it. I think it, I think it does. I think he did a brilliant job. And the fact that you can't really what you're really talking about is natural, but also something that artistically speaks to what you're doing. And he doesn't, mm. he, you know, to also with a lack of motivation that you have. It's 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 not the most showy cinematography, but it's really if you start thinking about bridging those two gaps, it's kind of it's kind of remarkable what he ended up doing. He, it is totally remarkable. And I told Hoyte. And I told Kevin Thompson, the production designer, and I told Albert Wolski, who's the costume designer, who's, uh, they're all great. Mm -hmm. And I told them all, I said at the first pre-production meeting, I said, none of you is going to win awards <laughs> for this movie. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, you will not mm -hmm. win any awards because it will be the most unshowy work and that's the most rewarding. I also told that to Brad. Because, you know, I hate to say this, but a lot of acting that gets rewarded tends to be very showy, tends yeah. to be much like, you know, almost like the senior in the high school play, you know, where all the moms and dads in the back row go, well, isn't he marvelous? Look at him acting. And in fact, subtle work is less often lauded and also harder. I mean, it's worth noting that Al Pacino did not win any awards for Godfather Part Two, but he did for Scent of a Woman. And it speaks to, and I'm not saying all showy performance is bad, by the way. What I'm saying is, though, it's the ones that get the attention. The same thing is true with costumes, same thing is true with lighting. But that's not why you do it. Yeah. Yeah. You want it to be honest. You tried to do as little green screen as possible, but obviously when you're in deep space, you do have lots of visual effects. Um, I'm curious about that process for you too, because I imagine that's something that's you're editing with Brad on a wire, right? You're yes. editing without without a full frame of yes. like what's in there. Absolutely. And I assume that's also partially why the Ad Astra post production process oh, was, it was so long. nightmarish for that exactly that reason. People said to me, "Where's the movie? Where's the movie?" Twelve percent of the shots in Ad Astra have no visual effects. Twelve. I just don't think people understand how labor-intensive 
it is even to just have a guy floating in space with the planet behind him that's like you have to do all this like rotoscope work and you have to it's like a it's nasty. Was that hard for you to edit a film? Because you have yes, to, you yes. have to edit it, and then because I imagine hard. there's a feedback loop. One, you have to give a feedback to the visual effects team. This is working. This is not working. Absolutely. But then also, I have to assume that when that comes in, you have a different frame, and that's oh, a yes. different and emotional thing. And so it also is informing the cut, right? Hundred percent. And I had uh, again a, a difficult time with that because the you have to. You know, it does, I will say this, it makes previewing a movie like this, and, you know, weirdly the studio knows it because we didn't preview. I mean, it makes the preview process useless because you could preview the movie without the visual effects done. I'm going to tell you as the co-writer and director of the movie that I could not project what was going to be in the screen. I could not. So I can't ask someone who, you know, is from, uh, I don't know, uh, West Covina or whatever in a mall to, to understand what it's supposed to be. A lot of times I would sign off on animation, which would work in the cut. And then when they started to render it, the render would look different because it had to. And you'd realize that you'd made a mistake signing off on the animation in the way that you did. And then you'd have to go back and say, well, I need to redo, we need to redo it. And they'd say, well, no, you already signed off on the animation. Like, I understand that, but the render looks very different. This went on and on and on. Uh, at three, three weeks before the Venice Film Festival, the visual effects supervisor, who's great, a guy named Alan Maris, looked at me with a very deadpan tone and he said, well, we're doing very well. We have only 306 shots left to go. And that's the kind of situation it was. I have such admiration for people who do this all the time, and I don't know how they do it. I really don't. And that whole creation in your head, it's a skill and it's an art in and of itself. It, it is, it. and I'm not sure I have that talent. You know, it's just, it's a, you have to be able to project. It is almost a form of painting. But even, you know, I was a painter as a kid. I loved it. I wanted to be a painter. I'm technically very, very good. If you said to me, paint this you know, bottle here, this water bottle, I could do it very well, technically, but I'm a terrible painter. Like, I, I have no vision for it, really. And I think that it's sort of like, even when you paint, you say, I'm gonna, in, in your head, you have an image of what you wanna paint. It almost never comes out that way on the canvas. So it's sort of that translation becomes a very difficult process mediating, you know, the difference between what you have in your head and what winds up in the film. In the opposite direction, my understanding is like when we're on the moon and when we're on Mars and it, it, we're on the planets, this is location work. Is that right? You found these places like so, yes. so, so it's like so like the moon is like the desert and, the, and, and these are old buildings. It's just very fascinating to me because I, I very much felt transported by that and it's, it's a remarkable work to take practical locations like that and make them make them like look like uh, you know a moon race and things like well, that. Well, yes, it's it's the funny you bring this up though because here's the thing, yes, we shot the lunar rover sequence in the desert. And the second unit director was a brilliant guy named Dan Bradley is uh, was instrumental in helping me shoot a lot of that stuff. Do you have fun doing an action scene? I don't because you know they're they're done before the scene is shot in that Hitchcock way that we talked about. You know, I'll, so I'll do the close-ups of Brad, right? And I'll say, action, and he'll go, <gasps> cut. Okay, let's do another take, action. 
cut, you know, you're doing it only in tiny pieces and then you cut the whole thing together and you see if it makes sense. But here's the funny part about it. So you say it's shot in the desert, which it was. But all of the surfaces of the desert, there's still life in the desert, right. a lot of life. And all of the surfaces had to be replaced. So what do we replace them with? We replace them f with lunar surface, which were taken, you know, the Apollo missions, the high-res photo. We were using the photos of the lunar surface. So in some weird way, it's shot on location. So the same thing is true for the Mars stuff. We used all the, the rover foot, uh, photography, the high-res photography for the Martian setting. So, um, is this something you do a mock-up of before, in that sense of, do you have someone say, like, okay, here's, here's the moon mission, um, a nice high-res NASA We didn't. Day. You didn't. Okay. We didn't. Our plan was to paint out the vegetation. But then, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was. It might have been someone, the company that did it was called Atomic Fiction that did the lunar rover sequence for us. I think it was someone there who said either that or it was Alan Maris who suggested using the actual high-res photos which of course was thrilling to me yeah. because you can't, you can't fake it. Yeah. And I think the sequence looks like the moon. So uh, the interiors is a different story. The interiors is all about trying to maintain a kind of visual consistency with the exteriors, mm -hmm. uh, uh, both in terms of the color, but also a, a kind of aesthetic idea that the moon is closer to us, it would be more like a mall and Mars would be almost like the Antarctica outpost. So we looked weirdly at a lot of Antarctica outposts, McMurdo uh, Station, which is an an the American station in Antarctica, for clues about how we think it might look. Because in the future we thought that's kind of the way it'll be, an Antarctica outpost. James, thank you so much for your time. This is a so wonderful welcome. movie. Thank uh, you. And uh, we look forward to the next one. Thank you so much.